0: Welcome Butterflies and Bravery. This is Whisper and Jemima. We're your hosts. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. Whisper wrote a chapter for a book. We're having cat difficulties. <laughs> I'll let her tell you more about it. Now let the cats off the desk. <laughs> I am part of this
1: a writing coalition with a group of women. There's 12 of us. And I was invited to be part of this coalition to write we're writing a collaborative book essentially and each one of us are writing a chapter about something from our life or very specific sort of life altering type of story and what the lessons are like what we gain gain from it and for those of you who have listened to us or know a little bit about where we come from and our background is we were born and raised into the children of God. And trying to fit that story into one chapter proved extremely challenging. There was like a whole boatload of stuff that I had to skip over. Yeah. So I guess what you guys will be getting is a sneak peek into this, into the book. <laughs> sneak peek sneak yeah it's called dare to express I, I believe that's what the title is they finally went with is dare to express so it's coming out in september we're doing the fine tuning now it's so the first funny. time i've ever had it was a very interesting experience because it was a, a an outside editor like that doesn't know anything about my past or my story like nothing about that but she's a pretty well-known editor so it's a very unique experience having someone like just completely cold call in on the editing and so that was wild very cool so yeah i guess we're gonna read the chapter right
0: yes without further ado (laughs) we shall begin the title is she's an eagle when she flies section one the man and the tape just to pre-warn you I will probably be bawling the whole time I read this I'll try to hold it together but I'm already losing it (laughs) I haven't even started I've already losing it (laughs) okay here we go I was sprawled staring at the roof trying to focus on dots of something I couldn't tell what they were because my eyes wouldn't focus. And when they did, the dots multiplied. My body was airborne for less than a tenth of a second, but it still came down hard. Where are we? Is this a dirt road? A sudden turn. This time, my body slid on the slick white leather seat. I knew it was leather because the man driving had made sure to tell us it was. At least twice. I was not impressed at all. Still feels like plastic, and I was sliding on it just like plastic. My mind stumbled into why fur turned into plastic once it's off the animal. It was not a coherent thought. <laughs> perhaps it was all the glasses of bubbly wine the driver had insisted I drink that were now sloshing around in my brain, or perhaps it was because I was only 10.
1: You didn't read that wrong. I was 10 and drunk.
0: My head was still sloshing, but I could hear the auntie in the passenger seat. You shouldn't have given her all that wine. Her mother may get upset at you. He snorted. Do you think that I care? I knew what he meant. He wasn't one of my mom's fish, of course. He could be if he wanted to. He was one of the special big fish the ones that were rich or powerful enough. This one was rich. A big fish could visit any of the homes at any time and have his choice of companions. That's how I ended up here in the back of a Mercedes, sprawled on white leather seats and trying to remember if I was remembering. The car took a sharp left, I was not going to slide onto that fucking floor again. Instinctively, I grabbed hold of the seat cushion. My fingers touched something plastic. I pulled it out. It was a white cassette tape. My eyes widened. Dolly Parton's greatest hits. I read silently. I had never heard of her. But that, of course, was because I'd never heard of anyone. Except Michael Jackson. I did know who that was. But only because in the early 80s, he was everywhere. Even in Malaysia, where I am now, drunk and bounced sliding around in the back seat of a car like I was in a snow globe. Holding the cassette tape, I'm suddenly sober, or it felt like that because the blood had drained from my brain to help my heart beat. I was holding something from the system, from the outside world.
1: <laughs> there was a reason I'd never heard of anyone anywhere. I was born into and raised in the notorious cult, the Children of God. Their later aliases have been the Family of Love, the Family, and the Family International, respectively. Yeah, some geniuses at work there. The Children of God are a fundamental Christian apocalyptic isolationist cult. It's better known in the news as a sex cult, and they're definitely used fundamentally incorrectly. If your curiosity is anything like mine, you'll probably want to toss those names into a search engine. Pro tip, children of God works best. But be ready, there's a lot of information out there about them. Unfortunately, nothing good, unless you end up on their website. That information is miraculously super good. (laughs) (laughs) The children of God came to be in 1968 when a handful of disenchanted hippie teens followed a 50 year old disgraced evangelical preacher and his children into a clubhouse and declared a revolution against the system. In the post Vietnam War era, they found plenty of disenchanted hippie teens By the early 70s, they had grown to a point of requiring their members to report their numbers. By 1973, they had 4,000 members, 580 homes or communes, and were in 62 countries, and 122 babies had been born. That's when I came onto the scene. I was one of the 122. Growing up in the Children of God, we were raised in institutionalized abuse. As in all the physical, sexual, emotional, mental, and spiritual abuses you could think of. But make them institutionalized. No matter what home you went to, you would experience the same abuses. Nothing changed. Just the faces. Isolation from the outside world was one of the strictest health rules going out into the system required intense and unrelenting supervision of at least two adults. No system school, music, books, movies, friends, jobs, relatives. No contact at all. None. With an exception or two. You could ask outsiders for directions and for money. And you can speak to them, but it better be about Jesus. And that's why it was such a big deal when I decided to risk everything to sneak the cassette tape home.
0: I spent the rest of the ride trying to look like I was sleeping while imagining my once-in-a-lifetime private Dolly Parton show and begging Jesus for forgiveness. Just for one listen, Jesus, I promised to put it back. I knew I could promise that because I knew I'd be in this back seat again or bed or hotel room. Nothing like that happened to me that night. When we got to the man's house, the auntie said I was too drunk for anything and sent me to the living room or some room with a couch. I tumbled onto his couch. Oh, for fuck's sake, what was it with this guy in leather seating? No bedding? The auntie wasn't the nurturing type. She didn't have to be. She was a star ff -er and one of the few allowed to be childless. She leaned in so close I could smell her fish dinner mixed with alcohol. Exhausted, I curled deeper into my knees and pretended to sleep. Whisper. I squeezed my eyes tighter until I heard her suck her teeth. She was preparing to hiss through them. You better not have done anything to make the man angry. The fish whiskey smell left with the auntie, and I started breathing for the first time that night. My cheek against the cold plastic leather. I didn't care there was no pillow or blanket. With chattering teeth, I clutched my cassette tape tightly. In that moment, nothing else mattered. Not tonight. There would be other nights and... (sighs) There would be other nights and other man's, but not tonight. The bubbles in my head were quieter now, or they all popped. Not tonight, I whispered to myself. In the morning, the couch was still plasticky and cold. Those bubbles had definitely all popped. Why is my entire body a nauseated stomach? Never mind. I dared for a minute to touch my tape. It was still there, wrapped in my sweater like a roti. Blah, no rotis. But I smiled through the queasiness. I had Dolly. I couldn't have known what that tape was going to mean to me. Or maybe I did. The way it already felt like a life raft. I was triumphant all the way home. Going back wherever tomorrow was worse than every today. I knew I could bear it better now. I had Dolly. I always smile when I recall my
1: triumphant ride home. I never did put that cassette tape back. Getting away with smuggling the contraband tape into my life would end up being my salvation many times over. It was something that was mine and only mine. In that chaotic, confused world I was growing up in, it felt like a lifeline to sanity. Dolly stayed with me over the years while that man faded into the darkness, just like the many other men before him and the many men that would come after him. Hold, please. If you feel like you need a few deep breaths, that's okay. I have to take a breather sometimes too. And it's my story, but yes, it's a lot. It's okay if this is freaking you the fuck out. This isn't supposed to be okay. None of this was okay. A 10 year old isn't supposed to know what being drunk tastes like, or that she was supposed to ask for gold jewelry when she went with the man, or that she understood she was the trade. If that leaves your brain screaming and your heart begging to look away, it's a good thing. It means you're sane the people who I grew up around were not. I still get surprised at the levels of depraved insanity that was everyday life for me. Without blinking, I'd unaffectedly accepted I'd be given out to the man again. But it was my sin of wanting to listen to the tape that had me trembling and bargaining with chips a little girl should never have to hold. I didn't know then that my eventual attempts to fuse this cult god I knew with a supposed god of love would prove spiritually fatal. I think I gave up trying to understand the cult's god and why he would be so angry at the gentle wishes of a little girl, but that she would please him as crippled prey. What I did know was that the worn journey from my knees for their prayers to my knees for their phallic pacifiers was a short one. Would it help if I took a moment to skip to the good part? It's this. I'm okay. I'm on the other side of these particular storms. The woman I am today is a warrior who's proud of her scars. I wouldn't write about my story if I wasn't. But it's not easy to read, I know. It's not easy to write. I guess that's partly why I throw some humor in. So if anything makes you chuckle, that's okay. If you find nothing funny at all, that's also okay. Just don't write to me about it. This is not to minimize anything. It was shockingly ugly what happened to so many of us. Just sometimes I need to laugh. It makes my monsters a little smaller and their shadows fall a little shorter. She must have written it for me. One of the songs on Dolly's tape was The Bargain Store. These days, it's probably not one of Dolly's more recognized songs, but it was one of the ones I played over and over again. From the first night I brought her home, under my headphones, I would listen to Dolly's lilting, glittery voice singing my song to me, and I would thank her with snot and tears. The words that were mine said, my life is like a bargain store. I may have just what you're looking for, but if you don't mind the fact that all the merchandise is used... With a little mending, it could be as good as new. I say mine because there were times where I felt so broken, I would pretend that she wrote it about me. With my thumbnail years and my poor orphaned heart, I would wonder if someone could ever come along to love me, now that I was so used up. (laughs) Used up in my all of 10 years old. It wouldn't be until years later that I would understand that a 10 11 or 12 year old wasn't meant to think that they were used up. There's a reason I have held on through hurricanes, undone monsters, and plowed through hell to ensure my children will never know this cycle. From these wounds I sourced a typhoon of unconditional acceptance and a love without edges that will always be theirs. I transformed my abandoned little girl into their unwavering warrior. As sad as it was that I had seen so much pain and abuse that I could believe those lyrics were for me still, my soul was telling me that this wasn't love and it was registering as very wrong, even though I'd never known anything else. I like to thank Dolly for this, but I'm sure a lot of it was me. My heart was rejecting the abuse, even when my conscience couldn't picture living another way. the necklace there finally came the time that we would leave that country behind the country that brought me so much pain, so much confusion and to so many men would be
0: gone. I remember that day clearly. They said the leadership wanted us to move to a new country. My heart nearly jumped out of my chest. I didn't care about the reason we'd moved so many times already, My passport looked like a United Nations conference. (laughs) All I cared was I wouldn't have to see the worst man again. Not the always leather seats man who would get me drunk. This man was so much worse than all the other dripping wrinkled men. My body convulsed at the thought. So how soon can we leave? I didn't need to ask that. I would blink and our world would be packed up yet again. We had practice lots is there such a thing as a professional packer ask me to pack a suitcase i will tetris the shit out of that and fill it with twice as much as you can (laughs) yeah me too no lie (laughs) no seriously you're right (laughs) even the freezers at work i somebody else like we got fed it all "Mm, i'll get it i didn't need to ask that i would blink and our world would be packed up yet again Oh, wait, I already read that part. I feel like I'm watching one of those Charlie Chaplin movies where everything's going just a little too fast, but not so fast that it's on fast forward. I want it to be on fast forward. I knew that I wanted to get out of this country so very badly, but what was the rush for everyone else? Maybe they're afraid of something too. I'm counting down the seconds until I'll be gone from the blackest place i had ever lived. Unfortunately, I wasn't the only one counting down. The worst man was, too. Another big fish. Only he was the scariest of all. The most gold was from him. And the most pain. I thought of how often he would tell me that I belonged to him. Sometimes I believed him. Since nothing seemed to stop him. (laughs) But leaving Wood, I watched his eyes flash when he found out I would soon be out of reach. I was so glad. In my mind, I was soaring where I would be safe from him. I knew there would be more uncles, but at least not him. Except he was showing up more than usual, maybe because we're leaving. I want to not be here. Can I pray for that? My heart is exhausted. I curled up onto my bed. I needed to cry to hear her voice. I put my headphones on and I pressed play on my Walkman. I would imagine that I was Sandy and Dolly would take me in for my last night because I wanted to not be here anymore. Ain't she got an extra bed for me and little Andy, I sang, whispered. She was just a little girl, not more than six or seven. But that night as they slept, the angels took them both to heaven. God knew little Andy would be lonesome with her gone. Now Sandy and her puppy dog won't ever be alone. We were leaving in days and then in hours. The worst man showed up on the last day. This time he didn't care who saw the way he grabbed my arms. And I froze from the shock of that. His hands were so tight I was sure he had reached my bones He pushed something into my hand. You are mine and you always will be. Wear this so you know you belong to me. I will come and I will find you. All the soaring miles in my head suddenly turned to inches. My feet were sinking in mud. It was not a small or vain threat. The worst man was a very top ranking member of the military, the same military that ran the country. I looked at my hand, even though I already knew a gold necklace, but it was different this time. My blood suddenly felt cold inside me. The worst man had carved his name on it. Like an invisible collar, that necklace stayed with me years after it had been taken and sold my own markless branding
1: for the first few years after we arrived in Thailand on the rare occasion I would be outside one of the homes I would scan every face looking for the worst man I would see him on sidewalks and around corners none of my body parts ever stayed where they were supposed to I would hear my stomach in my ears and feel my heart pumping in my throat It was exhausted always being so terrified. One day, I was so tired, I simply decided that the worst man was dead. I imagined his fat stomach drowning his heart, and that in the last moment, he'd know I had finally hated him hard enough. I stopped being afraid of him. I hoped the maggots took their time with his rot, but he would never touch me again. I still won't watch James Bond movies or listen to Nat King Cole, but I call that a win-win. During those preteen years, The Worst Man was my scariest nightmare. The one who could leave me trembling in fear so much more than my dad or the uncles would. I think it was maybe because he was part of the outside world. What I've found over the years is that the wounds from The Worst Man have long passed while it was the ones who were supposed to love me, whose betrayal left the truly lasting scars and the deepest branding. To Thailand in the Wheel of Terror. I turned 12 a few weeks after arriving in Thailand, an adult, according to the cult. That meant full responsibility. It meant I could drink wine. I'm sure there were more allowances, but the one that mattered to me was I was allowed to watch the few adult Cult approved movies like Star Trek. (laughs) My happiness at turning 12 was short lived. A handful of movies were a pitiful compensation for the shit show those next few years turned out to be. Becoming an adult at 12 sounded good to us, but apparently there was the fine print, really shitty fine print. I don't think there's a better way to describe it. I was a ward of the cult passed around as they saw fit from one home to another, whenever it would suit a purpose. What purpose? Whose purpose? I never knew. Truthfully, a reasoning wouldn't have made a difference. Given to God, my mom had responded when I had written her to ask why they had sent me away. In two years, I moved to and from six different homes. Weirdly, it was both confusing and comforting, that a move would only change the faces. Of course, there was always some fresh hell unique to that home, but the essence remained the same. Even today, many of my nightmares are filled with dozens of people I'm aware I'm living with and I never know any of them. A home was required to have anywhere from 25 to 45 people. And I wasn't the only one being moved around all the time. Especially with the young teens like me, they never seemed to really know what to do with us except make us work. When we weren't being indoctrinated, we were a full-time workforce, from childcare to fundraising to cooking, all of it. We were free labor they could crush into submission. Trafficking was definitely not a word they would have used. They still vehemently claim they don't know the word. Naively, when I left Malaysia, I thought I'd left behind the worst of my sexual years. I passed the threshold, I thought. Instead, it was just the shitty fine print. I don't think I could forget the day I first found out that the full requirements of being a 12-year-old adult.
0: A sledgehammer could have dropped on my toe as I stood there, and I wouldn't have felt it. I was staring at the wheel of terror. I was on it. I had only moved here four days ago, and I was staring at my name on the wheel. I was on the fucking wheel. I guess I need to get used to this real fast. This is really not worth a Star Trek movie and a glass of wine was all I could think. It really wasn't.
1: (laughs) The actual adults called it the sharing schedule. Sharing was initially used to describe swinging or sharing your spouse, but it evolved into a generic term for sex. To me, and the other few preteens around, it was the Wheel of Terror. I loathed it. I never could adapt to it or endure it. I wish I had known that it should have never been something I was required to adapt to. Within days of getting to a new home, my name would be added to the wheel. Usually the men were on the outside wheel, the females on the inside. There were always more men than women. And it would hang on the home's bulletin board. Every week it would be turned and that would be your sharing partner for that week. Sharing God's love. Penises as the conduit, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, The school that actually wasn't. I was 15 when the cult decided to create schools, quote unquote, to house and control, sorry, train, the insane amounts of kids they were having. Take a movement that promoted boundary-free sex with as many possible women the men could find. Combine that with never allowing birth control or protection, and herpes wasn't the only thing running rampant. 8,813 of us had been born into exploitation by the year I turned 15. Oh, and the herpes thing? Not hyperbole. It was not uncommon for the homes to have a herpes bathroom for outbreak season. They herald it as the school vision. The one in Thailand was called the Training Center, or TC for short. I called it moving from the frying pan into the fire and adding 150 more people. This school that wasn't a school was actually a behemoth home of 200 to 250 people. I could pass someone in the hall I hadn't seen for six days because I was on kitchen duty and they were cleaning toilets. At least the fucking wheels of terror were in the rear view but it turned out the front view wasn't that great either they may have turned the sex abuse volume down well told people they turned it down but they turned up all the physical mental psychological and spiritual abuse volume way way up like a neighborhood kid who stopped playing the drums at 2 a.m only to add an entire band and amplifier There's no need to tell all the stories of mindfuckery and abuse that happened in the years there was a boot on our necks at the school that wasn't a school. In today's spotlight, some of our experiences would be similar to stories from the infamous troubled teen industry, but even that feels dismissive and inaccurate. We were prisoners in their war against their own children. Over those dark years, I would listen to Dolly, her angelic voice, carry me to places I'd never known. When the insanity seemed sure to drown me, she was a tether to sanity. Her voice sang to me of places in this world, somewhere, where children were safe and loved and cared for. I'm going to fast forward a bunch as I attempt to condense several years into a few lines, but by the end of my time at the school that wasn't a school, I was a young kid, pregnant, without choices or options, with an even younger kid who, at 17, was going to become a father. The everywhere and nowhere. We were sent to a home in upcountry Thailand. It was probably the most rural town I'd lived in. Not been in, just lived in. There were several adults, full of kids, mostly strangers. Almost immediately, I became very sick. Morning sickness, they rolled their eyes. No, no, something was wrong. An occult, adamantly opposed to secular medicine and doctors trying to get any help other than prayer, was screaming at the ocean. I'm going to mess up this pronunciation. <laughs> I got sicker. What I didn't know at the time was that I have hypermisses, gravidant. Oh, I don't even know.
0: Hyperemesis
1: gravidarum. Thank you, (laughs) An extreme type of morning sickness that can be fatal to both mom and baby. In fact, until the 1950s, it was the leading cause of maternal death. It proved fatal to me.
0: Okay, where am I? I was so confused. Was I being punished? I was in a wheelchair. Oh, I remember now. I couldn't stand up any longer. My legs crumpled under me each time I tried. No one from the home was anywhere to be seen. We had committed the unforgivable by going to a hospital. So they had just dumped us off at the front doors. They didn't even leave a note in my basket. I clung to the plastic pitcher I'd carried with me everywhere for the last three months, except it wasn't just bile I was throwing up anymore, it was blood. I still didn't know what was happening mainly because no one in the hospital spoke English except for one doctor, and he was two days out. They wheel me to a room with 11 women, all moms in some stage of pre- or post-delivery. The whole hospital is the same color, I think. There are too many voices garbling in my head. There's a drain in the middle of the room. Yikes. I've been to places like this to sing at for our one missionary act of the month. Now I'm a patient here. My poor baby husband, barely 18, is trembling like a chihuahua as I weave in and out of awareness. I cried for him or I was crying because I needed to pee. I remember wanting to pee. My body refused to cooperate with the condensed metal toilet. So I decided to get out of bed. To walk to the bathroom, of course, as if my body was working at all. Many things happen. Most of them all at once. So many voices and then silence. I am nowhere, but also everywhere. Neither terrestrial or temporal. In a rush, like a bullet train, I felt it come in, flooding me. Total, complete peace. There isn't a word for all this, I am full, happy, expanding, infinite. I've never felt anything close to this, and I never want to let it go. I could feel everyone, like all of me, and them, and love. So much love, unending love. So this is what dying feels like. Okay, I'm ready. I understand that all I would have to do is let go, and I would become one with this my part of it becoming a whole of it i felt what i imagined a balloon just let go would feel in that moment before it flies then there was a flicker of him hmm, him in this expansion there was a center that reverberated pulsed my baby i feel his want more than his need no need is there but I feel the want he wants me to stay for him okay little one me too you deserve that chance I felt breath everything that was nothing became nothing I heard Thai voices again and fucking hell the pain is this really how much pain lives here I am so heavy, an elephant is sitting on me, hurting every inch of me, every bone. It looked like it was day. I thought it was night. I look at my watch. What happened to my watch? I can't even see the hands. The glass is so shattered. Then I saw the bruises everywhere, covering my arms, my legs. Somebody had invited me to Fight Club, but didn't tell me. I see my infant husband with a look on his face. What happened? I asked. At least, I think I did. You kind of... left us, he said. My head is not all the way there, like it's a pie missing three pieces. Come again? Oh. 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 I put my hand over my abdomen. Yes, baby. I'm going to give you every possible chance. So much changed
1: after my time in the everywhere and nowhere. I knew without a doubt that I needed to rescue him from this life. I hadn't even taken in the enormity of what had happened yet and what I had proved. A couple of weeks later, I received a letter from the one precious thing I found in the cult. My BFF. That's me. (laughs) Ah, the days of snail mail. It was dated the morning after the everywhere and nowhere happened. Her letter said I had come to her during the night and told her she was going to get some news that I was sick, but everything was going to be okay. Okay. Sometimes it feels like I still have goosebumps from that letter. The enormity finally caught up. I was never going back. Breaking free. In 1996, I flew to the U.S. It was clear I wasn't going to be able to keep my baby healthy or safe unless I did. We were swallowed up into another home almost immediately, and what followed were five long years of pain and confusion and depression. For me, that is. My infant husband, he was having a grand time carrying on a three-year-long relationship with a woman, while also having sex with the other women in the home. He was, to no one's surprise, very comfortable in the cult. Me, not so much. I had four kids who somehow seemed to be all the same age. I'd had a miscarriage alone in the bath. I wasn't allowed to learn to drive. I was dependent on the husband, even in his three-year relationship. I thought I was terrified of becoming a single mom with this deck stacked against me. But truthfully, I had forgotten my strength. After those five years, I finally convinced the kid's father to escape with the kids and I. We weren't allowed to have any money ourselves unless we were going to the mission field, so we told the leadership we were. Once we got the money, we secretly bought round trip tickets from New York to Kingston, Jamaica. We were flying out of JFK on September 11, 2001. Except for an embarrassed travel agent messing up one of our tickets, we would have been sitting in JFK when the towers fell. We left from LaGuardia on September 15th instead. After five months in Jamaica, the futile attempt to establish an orphanage collapsed under government regulations. We flew back to New York on February 18th, 2002, with only $500 to our name. We were offered a room in the basement of an upstate New York house, assuming we could get there. After a $300 taxi ride in a tiny basement room with $200 and four kids under six, my life started for the first time. Me, I'll be just fine. Lord, it's like a hard candy Christmas. I'm barely getting through tomorrow, but still I won't let sorrow bring me way down. My life since leaving the cult has been much more like the scrambled strings of Christmas lights than the cliché ups and downs. And like those tangled strings of lights, there have been many starts and stops, blown fuses, and mostly not knowing which end was up. Getting out of the destructive cult I had been born into has been overwhelming and confusing and challenging and inspiring. All the things... These days, this is the part of my life I usually want to talk about. It's the part that was the toughest and the most rewarding. The part that matters the most to me. It's where I ended the cycle of abuse and brought my kids into a world of unconditional love and freedom. In the podcast I started and host with my BFF, I talk a lot about my life since leaving. It's even in the title, Butterflies and Bravery leaving, living, and loving after a cult. The fulfillment, expansion, and love that I've experienced since starting my podcast has been immeasurable. In telling my story, I've turned my past into purpose. Even still, I had no idea how to capture this into a chapter. The cult, dying, starting over, kids, divorce, suicides, deaths, coming out, discoveries, a life of healing. In the end, Finding the cassette tape of Dolly's songs was the place that I wanted to jump off from, and I thought I knew why. Because, as one of my most vivid memories, it's a place I return to when I think about influences in my life, and also what I often think of as the beginning of things. I say the beginning of things because it was the first time I fully understood there was something beyond the cornered walls the cult had boxed around me. All this time, I've been bringing myself to the place where I discovered my first connection to hope. I didn't know it at the time, but carrying that tape of Dolly's songs through all the years of pain and abuse kept a connection to the center of my soul, the soul that believed in a better world. But the significance was because I touched something even deeper. It was my power. In having the bravery to risk so much for something to be my own. I drank from my power for the first time. I believed in something more and then acted on it. I began to understand that I wasn't just Dolly, who I love, that I have taken home that night, but a reminder that I had believed, even if just for a moment, in something better for me and it had made me brave. I'd imagined a better world where children are loved, valued and safe. And I responded with courage. That's what the memory reminds me of the first time I felt my power. There was something more about what gave me the courage to step into that power. It wasn't just believing. It was because I had acknowledged my worth. I had believed in the possibility of another life and not just that it was possible, but that it was possible for me. I deserved that better life and love and safety. That is what pushed me to act what pushed me to take my power
0: and use the courage it gave me. Belief, then worth, then power. That's when I saw the connection. Belief, worth, and power are all connected and one feeds the other. They all need each other. Just believing in something is not enough. But if you believe in that something for you, that's your worth agreeing with you. If you want a better job, you have to first believe that the job is out there. Then you have to believe that it's for you, that you are worthy of the job. And that in turn gives you the courage to take your power and go get the job. It might start with a question or a hope. A question or hope is neutral, but if that question or hope gives you a belief in something, take that belief and use it to show yourself that you are worthy. If you want something, doesn't that say that your soul knows you are worthy of having it? Belief is the stepping stone that you can use to show yourself your own worth. Then build on the worth with your power and take action. That's why I kept coming back to Dolly's tape. The moment I first believed that there was something better that I deserved, it helped me feel brave enough to take the tape. I am often asked, how are you still here? How did you survive through it? I've not always had a solid answer. Perhaps because of Dolly. Or maybe... It's that at 10 years old, I met my power for the first time. I became a warrior in the moment, and that's what I took home. That's what I've carried with me, my moment of courage, of power. I saw the steps building, belief, then worth, then power.
1: But am I worthy? Living with trauma and complex PTSD means living with a lot of challenges. You're on a path of healing and you may have mental health issues or addiction. There's triggers and coping and masking and making sure and all of that to also be productive. It's a lot. But how do you know you're worthy? Through all the work and counseling and healing I've done, for me, that is the hardest one. That's the doozy. Living with trauma can completely cripple your feelings of worth. So how do you go about fighting it? You can't just pull it out of the air. I've tried that. You can't just pull it out of your ass. I am trusting that doesn't work either. Most humans need validation to believe in our worth, and most of us can't validate ourselves. In recognizing the building connection of these steps, I realized that this could be the key to finding that worth. When I can envision something as possible, it becomes my belief. And once I believe it, then I can also believe that I deserve it, that I'm worthy. In some ways, it's very simple, but it's also not. There's still work to be done. There will always be work to be done. But when you connect the steps, each one creates the building block for the next one. When you believe something is possible, if you can picture it and desire it, you already know you're worthy. And once you connect to your worth, that's when your warrior kicks in and says, let's go get it. Believing something is possible for you is your soul knowing you're worthy of it. This is why I go back to the tape. My soul, she knows that was the start of my story of reclamation and power. She gave me the building block for knowing my worth. When my belief became my worth, became my power. (laughs) good stuff man yeah i ended it with uh one of my favorite dolly songs it's um some just parts of it she's been there god knows she's been there she has seen and done it all She's a woman, she knows how to dish it out or take it all. Her heart's as soft as feathers, still she weathers stormy skies. She's a sparrow when she's broken, but she's an eagle when she flies. Gentle as the sweet magnolia, strong as steel, her faith and pride. She's an everlasting shoulder. She's a leading post of life. She hurts deep, and when she weeps, she's just as fragile as a child. And she's a sparrow, and she's broken. But she's an eagle. When she flies. I love that song, I love all her songs. But that
0: one's pretty special. It's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful you're amazing so are you thank you for reading that with me I love it it's fantastic of course it's always hard to dredge through that stuff but it's so beautiful to see the person you become
1: yeah you've been right there with me that's the best part of
0: it all yeah yeah We each have one wing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One wing each. (laughs) They recently put out like a newer updated version of Cinderella. It's like a musical. And I had thought about watching it before because Billy Porter plays the fairy godmother. And he's just super fabulous. So I put it on last night and I didn't realize where it came from. There was a caterpillar caught in a spider's web and she pulled it out and she put it in a box and then it turned into a chrysalis and then it came out as a butterfly. And when it went flying, the butterfly became the fairy godmother. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And and in the end, like she said something like, I'm always going to believe in caterpillars. (laughs) Was like, I was, I was oh That that's cute seeing that
0: very cute anyway
1: yes butterflies and bravery yeah we've had a few people that we talked about that we've invited them to come on and just the timing hasn't lined up so we should have that coming up soon
0: cool exciting stay brave <laughs> And remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar. That's right.